death. A lot of us try to avoid the subject at all costs, but it's one of the inevitable parts of life. And for some people, death provides a paycheck. Bruce Weber is an obituary writer for the New York Times. An obituary is not a story about death. It's a, you know, death is the news event, but it's a story about a life. So I think people who are who tend to uh, to view the obituaries page as depressing haven't been reading it carefully enough. Good morning. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. Today, we're exploring death from a variety of perspectives, including that of 19th century New York City. In fact, you can still attend a good old-fashioned funeral in the Big Apple if you want to. The Merchant's House Museum on East 4th Street in Manhattan recreates a 19th century funeral the last weekend of October every year. They hold a service right there in the house, complete with mourners, a model dead body, and a procession to a local cemetery. I went down to the Merchant's House Museum and talked with Eva Oles, the Education and Communications Manager. Eva, set the scene for us, if you will. Where are we right now? We are standing in the front parlor of the museum. We're surrounded by Greek Revival architecture, beautiful Rococo Revival furnishings, and all of the belongings of the Treadwell family who once lived here. Now, this is also where they held funerals back in the day, correct? Correct. In addition to weddings, balls, parties, and visiting, they held funerals in this room. People died in their own homes, and they were buried from their homes as well. Now, did the Treadwells actually die in this house, and were they laid out in this house? All but one Treadwell family member, and there were a number of them, died in this house during the 19th and early 20th centuries. And after they died, their bodies were prepared upstairs in their beds, and then they were carried downstairs to the parlors where they were laid out for friends and relatives to come and pay their respects before the funeral. Why? Why in the house? It has always been in the house. Death was something that was very much closer to life for um, hundreds and hundreds of years until really the modern times. And until people began to die in hospitals, there was no need to take the bodies out of the house. There was no impetus to remove death from life uh, within the home. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century when funeral parlors began to develop in the city and people began to go to hospitals to die instead of dying at home that you see death being removed from the house. How did New Yorkers in the early to mid-19th century view death? Were they afraid of it? I don't think they particularly look forward to it, but they certainly didn't have the distaste or the fear of death that we have today. A lot of it had to do with the fact that they didn't really know why people died. When somebody died of cholera, for example, they knew that they'd gotten sick, but they didn't know why or how or what they could have done to prevent it or save the person. So they turned to more spiritual explanations and justifications for death. And when you have a very profound spiritual connection to what's happening to you, you tend not to be as afraid of it or to resist it as much. Okay, so they would hold funerals right here in the parlor. What would the parlor look like? like during that time? An undertaker would have been hired to oversee the arrangements. They would have purchased flowers that helped to hide the smell of decay before embalming became common in the second half of the century. They would have hired extra folding chairs for the mourners to sit on. They would have draped portions of the room, especially the mirrors and the mantelpieces, with black crepe fabric. Um, Anything reflective would have been covered in black fabric as well. Why is that? The standard reason is because things that are reflective reflect light, they're cheerful, they're sort of jarring to somebody in mourning. There is also, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, a story that people were afraid of seeing the face of the departed in a reflective surface. And if they saw that face, they'd be the next to go. 
What kinds of flowers would they bring in? Scented flowers. Um, lilies were quite common. Um, lilies also held sort of meanings about death and purity um, in the 19th century. So the coffin would be about where here in this room? Well, the coffin, once it was purchased, um, would have been laid out perhaps in the front of the room towards the center. We always lay out the coffin when we do our morning exhibit um, between the windows. But the coffin was not necessarily the way the body was displayed. Sometimes they were displayed in a bed or laid on a sofa, looking surprisingly natural. Really? Well, people were not uncomfortable with the idea of death as we are today, and they didn't feel as distant from it. And of course, where is it more natural to display a body than laid out on a sofa or a bed? So people would come into the house and go over to the sofa and pay their respects. Correct. Or sometimes if someone was laid out in their bed, they would go all the way upstairs to the bedroom to view the body. And how long would the body remain on display? Well, before embalming, which of course is a process of making the bodies last a little bit longer, you had a very limited amount of time that you could keep a body around. Three to four days um, was considered about the right amount of time, although we have certainly seen evidence in some cases that they were kept for more than a week. Wow, that's a long time to have a dead body in your house. It is, um, but again, they didn't understand the danger that it was posed by these, these dead bodies, and also they didn't really have anywhere else to put them, so that's where they stayed. Did they set chairs up in the way that we do today at funeral parlors? We don't have much evidence um, of how they set the chairs up. They probably ranged the chairs um, so that mourners could sit and look at the coffin. That's what we've always presumed. We do know that they would often create a space aside where the family could go and be part of the proceedings but also be in private. Was it common for people to wear black as we do today as a sign of mourning? Absolutely. Black was a common color in or out of mourning in the 19th century, and almost everybody owned um, enough black clothing that they could always attend a funeral. Mourning clothes in the 19th century were also very formal. You had specific colors and specific types of fabric and specific styles that you were expected to wear for a certain period after somebody died. But this is something that takes a bit of time to assemble. So as people often died unexpectedly, during a funeral, you would wear black, but perhaps not full mourning clothes, as we tend to think of Civil War widows and things like that. That came later. How long would someone mourn in the 19th century? Well, the widow, after she got over the first funeral week, um, once she arranged her mourning clothes, she would stay in mourning for a year and a day in deep mourning, and then she would continue to mourn in what was called half mourning for another year. What does that mean, deep mourning versus half mourning? It has to do with the clothing that you wear and the way you interact with the public. Deep mourning clothes are made of black fabric that is not reflective. For example, bombazine was a very popular, very deep, dark black material. The clothes were trimmed in crepe and very little jewelry, if any, was worn. Who died here first, Mr. or Mrs. Treadwell? The first person to die here that we know of was Mrs. Treadwell's sister. She died in 1855. In 1865, Seabury Treadwell was the next person to die in the house. Okay, so Mrs. Treadwell had to mourn for that year and one day. That is correct. And we even have some clothing from the late 19... 19- from the late 1860s, excuse me, that is trimmed in crepe and was clearly worn during the family's mourning period for Seabury Treadwell. So during the funeral, someone would come in here, they would have prayers, do all of that here as well? Well, actually, what we've discovered in the past year or so is that funerals were not held in the house in many cases. They began from the house. So the minister would come to your home, as would all of the mourners, and then the 
coffin would be carried or driven in a hearse to the church, and from the church it would then be carried to the graveyard. Do they have a procession from the house to the church to the graveyard? When we do our funeral reenactments, we go straight from the house to the graveyard. Since we are recreating a mid-19th century church service, we didn't feel it was appropriate to ask a church to host us with a fake corpse. What do you know about what took place at the cemetery in the 19th century? Well, the service that we follow is from an 1850s version of the Book of Common Prayer, which was the Episcopalian prayer book and service book of the time. And there are very specific prayers to be said in the home, to be said in the church, and to be said at the gate of the cemetery and once you enter the cemetery and are standing around the gravesite. Um, they include prayers said by the priest, which I think you would probably recognize if you heard, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And they also include a prayer that is said in unison with the mourners. Something else I've read was that people were afraid to be buried because they were afraid to be buried alive back in the 19th century. What can you tell me about that? It's true. People were afraid, and they had good reason to be afraid. In the 19th century, they had not yet invented an oral thermometer. They didn't have a syringe or a hypodermic needle, and they didn't have other of the sort of modern medicine that we take for granted that would allow people to determine if you're actually dead or if you're simply in a coma. So it is very possible that you could wake up from a two- or three-day coma and discover that you were nearly buried. Yikes. It is disturbing. Edgar Allan Poe was obsessed with the fact, and I think he made a lot of plans to avoid that eventuality. Didn't they also develop a bell system so if you were underground, you could ring the bell so someone can dig you up? Yes, I have heard about that. Um, I don't know how commonly they were used, but I think it was something that people thought about a lot. Was everyone buried in the 19th century with cremation a possibility back then? Cremation was a possibility, but it was not legal in many cases, and it was also greatly frowned upon by the church. Um, in other countries, certainly cremation was around, but in New York, it was really not common until the end of the 19th century. There were what was called the Great Cemetery Debates towards the end of the 19th century, and it took part in place because of the fact that New York um, was very small and you needed a lot of ground in order to bury people. So they moved cemeteries out of the city um, pretty early on, but there was a rural cemetery movement as well, and that involved different methods of burying people that were a bit more friendly to the environment. What about music? Was music common during funerals in the 19th century? It depended upon the type of church that you belonged to. In the Episcopalian church, which is what the Treadwells belonged to, music was part of the service. It's very close to Catholicism. And so hymns were played during the service. One of the hymns that we found identified with funeral services in the 19th century um, Episcopalian churches is called When Our Heads Are Bowed With Woe. And you are now hearing it played on the museum's original, original to the Treadwell family, piano and, harps, um, and harmonium combination. Okay, Eva, anything else about death in the 19th century that you think we should know about? Um, I just want to reiterate that death was so much closer um, to people's lives in those days. They didn't have the distance that we have today. It happened in their homes. It happened not more frequently because everybody still dies today, but it was much more in your face. Um, it was something that they dealt with on a daily basis that they thought a lot about. Um, and I think you find it in their literature and in pretty much the motivation for everything that they do, this constant preparedness for death. Do you think we can glean anything from that today? 
I think that we would live happier lives if we were a bit more in tune with our own mortality a bit earlier. We would have fewer midlife crises, and I think we'd have an easier time when those that we love pass away if we were more involved in the process. Okay, Eva, thank you so much for talking with us about 19th century death. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure. Eva Alls is the Education and Communications Manager at the Merchant's House Museum on East 4th Street in Manhattan. Grave digger, when you dig my grave, could you make it shallow so that I can feel the rain? Grave digger. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're staring death in the face with a few different perspectives on the one inevitable event we all face at one point or another. Planning for your own demise can be a morbid affair, which might account for why so many people leave it to their loved ones to make those arrangements after they're gone. That's where Dennis Woolard comes into the picture. He's an expert in end-of-life planning and the executive director of family services at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Cityscape's Andrea McCreary caught up with him. Today we're talking about end-of-life planning. Could you explain exactly what that is? Probably from my point of view, end-of-life planning really involves those things that must be done prior to death or incapacity. And incapacity is a bigger and bigger issue as our population ages. We're dealing with more and more incidents of dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, debilitating injuries, uh, things of that nature. So someone can be alive and yet unable to make those final decisions, and then it really puts things in jeopardy as to whether things will go the way they would have wanted them to go or not. It's the one event, the one inevitable event that we're all going to go through, but do a lot of people actually plan for it? Unfortunately, uh, no. I, uh, I, you know, basically see it every single day um, in what we do and, and the families that we work with. Uh, I think from a national statistical basis, if you, uh, you know, speak with attorneys and uh, other people, they would tell you that basically 80% of the population today dies without even a simple will. Uh, and so most of the time we're dealing with... Uh, loved ones, survivors, if you will, uh, that are compelled, which means they have no choice. They'd rather be anywhere in the world but in meeting with us on that day, but they are compelled to come in and make those decisions that last an eternity, and they have no time to think about it, and they have to deal with all the financial issues. Um, you know, uh, it, it really becomes a, a tremendously stressful and very difficult situation to put people in. So what would be some of the benefits of planning ahead and you know, sitting down with somebody and trying to figure out what you're supposed to do? Well, obviously the benefit would be the peace of mind, uh, I feel, that comes from knowing that your wishes and desires uh, can be laid out uh, and then presented, if you will, at the time of your passing so that you have documents, uh, things that will speak for you when you no longer can speak for yourself, and direct those that are going to be responsible uh, as to how you want things to proceed. I mean, you can literally set the budget. You can make all of those important decisions right down to the minor detail of, you know, would you want your glasses on in the casket or not? Uh, What color of dress or suit would you want to wear? I mean, you can capture all of that um, if you will take the action necessary uh, to engage in this process. And it really is not morbid. It is not uh, something that is uh, 
you know, so time-consuming and everything. Uh, it, it really isn't. And once you get involved in it, it really becomes uh, a rather uplifting uh, exercise because you know that the, the last thing your loved ones are going to remember is that you did care enough to make sure that you did everything you possibly could to lessen the burden, lessen the load that they're going to face at the time of your passing because the grief's going to be bad enough. But to couple that with all the emotional and financial decisions that have to be made immediately, literally within hours of someone dying, it's a pretty difficult task for anybody. So when people come in, are they uncomfortable? Because death is a topic we don't really talk about much. Do they become uncomfortable? Do you see that they're relieved? What kind of emotions do you see? Well, I think everyone fears the unknown. And if you don't have access to good information, you know, it's really hard to know what you don't know. And so because that's so unknown, and death is a topic, as you said, that people try and avoid, especially their own mortality, um, people just kind of have that, you know, stick your head in the sand attitude of, well, I'll deal with it later. Uh, somehow, some way, it'll take care of itself. It'll work its way out. When in reality, uh, you know, death does not care. Rich, poor, you know, whether it's convenient or not, you know, it, it comes when it comes. What are the top three things people didn't know they had to plan for? Um, probably number one would be the, the idea of having a will. Um, you know, if, if I speak to an audience, no matter how large, and if I say, how many in here know that you should have a, a will, 100% of the people will raise their hand. They know they should have one. But in reality, only about 20% do. And a lot of people think that, you know, because I don't have much in the way of assets, that pretty much negates the reason to have a will. But that really is not true. You know, a will is, is your last directive, if you will, about how you want the things that you do have distributed, who they need to go to, and so on and so forth. And without that, then, you know, uh, it's going to go, obviously, into probate, and it could linger there a long time, which creates even more shrinkage, and therefore even the, the smallest things that you might think would pass very easily don't. The other thing is that, you know, there's powers of attorney um, that are addressed, if you will, and those powers deal with financial issues, health issues, and, you know, issues like if someone were on life support, and, you know, that leads to a health proxy and all those kind of things. But um, without clear direction from you um, as far as powers of attorney, you know, the powers of attorney regarding handling financial matters and other things, they expire at death. And a lot of people come in to see us and say, I want to make, you know, cemetery arrangements for this person. Show us their power of attorney, which that person's dead, so those are useless. And if there's no will, then there's no executor to pick up those powers. And literally, in many cases, you have to go get a court order to figure out who's going to be responsible for making the final decisions and, uh, and doing all of these things on behalf of the deceased. So it can really create a lot of, you know, headaches and uh, emotional issues that people just aren't prepared for. And have you seen a lot of these high-stress situations play out? Uh, unfortunately, I have. Um, one of the most... Um, <laughs> It was funny afterwards, but I had two brothers that uh, got into a fist fight in our funeral home, uh, and I had to call the police. And the issue was whether mom should have her glasses on in the casket or not. And uh, it really didn't have much to do with the glasses. It had a lot to do with sibling rivalry. One brother had been close by and 
helped mom and supported mom and dealt with mom through all the the issues leading up to her death. The other brother was far away, never came around much, and then I'm sure out of guilt that he didn't do all these things, he decided when he came back that he was going to take control of the funeral and make all these decisions uh, regardless of what the other brother felt mom wanted and so forth. And the the one brother finally had enough, and uh, the issue of glasses came up, and it was a free-for-all, you know. But I've seen lots of things like that, you know, little things uh, like uh, jewelry, you know, which is many times put on, you know, a favorite brooch or necklace or something, earrings, rings, things of that nature. Uh, And without clear direction, I've seen funeral directors hand them to the wrong person when they were taken off, possessions nine-tenths of the law, and then all of a sudden you've got people totally irate and upset and screaming and yelling, and the person's really not even in the ground yet. Let's say somebody doesn't really want to sit down and talk about all the details, but they want to keep this in mind. What kind of documents should they keep track of or you know, make sure that they have at hand when they are ready to sit down and plan this? Uh, obviously, if they don't have a will, that's the one thing that I would really advocate that every th- everybody you know, look into. A simple will is not very expensive. In fact, the estate planning attorneys would tell you the biggest fees they ever generate are from lack of planning. The other thing is that you want to be sure that uh, if you do have a will, that it's kept up to date. I was in Texas, and uh, there's a lot of military people down there, and I was meeting with a gentleman who was retired military, and he and his wife were sitting across from me, and I always ask when I meet with a family, you know, one of the very first things is, do you have a will? Yes, sir, I do. And I said, uh, that's great, because most of the people we meet with don't have one, so you're to be congratulated. And I said, uh, when's the last time you updated it or looked at it? And he said, well, it's been quite a while. And I said, really? I said, do you know where it is? And he said, oh, yes, sir, I do. He said, I can get it right now. So he walked over to his desk and got the will, brought it over, laid it down in front of me and his current wife. Uh, Unfortunately, this gentleman had been married four times. And the first wife was still named in the will as who would receive all of his uh, property and assets at the time of his death. So needless to say, the fourth wife who was sitting next to him was none too happy. Uh, But that's just an example of what can happen. The other thing is to make sure that on things such as life insurance and other financial instruments that, you know, have a beneficiary designation and stuff like that, that you review those and make sure that who you are naming as your beneficiary is who you want to have, you know, the proceeds of that policy or that asset. Because I've run into some real heartbreaking situations there where a husband dies unexpectedly, wife's got two children, um, she thinks he has a $250,000 policy, he purchased this right after he got out of college, he wasn't married at the time, he named his sister as the beneficiary. Wife and sister do not get along. Money goes directly to the sister as direct beneficiary. She won't give a dollar to the wife to help with the burial. And that's more common than people realize. So these are things that, you know, you put in a drawer and you kind of forget about, but it, it's not pretty, and it's too late to do anything about it many times when someone has, you know, passed away. So, you know, you need to review these things periodically to make sure they still say what you want them to say. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. You're quite welcome. It was a pleasure meeting you.
Dennis Woolard is the executive director of Family Services at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. He spoke with Cityscape's Andrea McCreary. Writing obituaries. It might not be the sexiest job in journalism, but those who do it say the task comes with challenges and rewards. Bruce Weber writes obits for The New York Times. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. How long have you been writing obits for The Times now? It'll be three years in April. How different, Bruce, is writing obituaries from what you did as a general assignment reporter and a theater columnist? Unlike every other uh, reporter on the paper, uh, obituary writers never get to witness anything with their own eyes. We are essentially reporting on the past as opposed to the present. That's, that's the fundamental difference. Is there a formula you follow for writing obits? Well, I think that one of the things that uh, you know, probably needs to be said Um, And maybe it's self-evident, but maybe it isn't, is that an obituary is not a story about death. It's, uh, you know, death is the news event, but it's a story about a life. So I think people who are, who tend to uh, to view the obituaries page as depressing haven't been reading it carefully enough. That it's, uh, that in in fact, I think that there's some of the most sort of joyous, uh, joyous writing and, you know, and uh, sort of interesting revelations in the newspaper on the obits page. Is it difficult to determine which facts about a person's life to include? Sure it is. <laughs> but, um, but it's difficult to determine which facts to include uh, in any story. It's basically based on, uh, uh, based on news judgment. Uh, at a certain point, you have to, uh, I think any writer uh, on any subject asks himself, uh, is this interesting or is this not interesting? If it is, I'll put it in. If it isn't, I'll leave it out. What was the most challenging obituary assignment you've ever been given? Usually the most difficult ones are about people who um, are accomplished in areas I know nothing about uh, and, and are sort of, uh, you know, I'm kind of daunted by economists and, um, uh, and scientists. I did a whole bit of a guy named, uh, a couple of months ago, a guy named Britton Chance, who um, was a, a brilliant scientist, uh, and I still don't understand what the hell he did. Uh, in spite of the fact that I spent three days trying to figure it out, and uh, didn't, we didn't have to run a correction, so I assume I got it. Uh, I, I assume I got it right, but I couldn't explain it to you. <laughs> How frequently do you have to pick up the phone and call a family member to get information on someone who's died? Every day, more or less. Can that be difficult? Uh, you know, sometimes, but most of the time, the people on the other end are actually very glad to very glad to hear from the New York Times. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that if the Times is writing an obituary of this person, then uh, you know it's an acknowledgement of the significance of a life, and I think the uh, families appreciate that quite a lot. But the second thing is, when a loved one dies, the impulse is to talk about that person, and you'll talk about you'll talk about the person to anyone, you know, uh, your friends, uh, your people who uh, or, or just wishing you condolences, and even, and even reporters. How does the Times decide who gets into the obituary pages? Well, it's, uh, you know, in the same way we decide uh, what news stories get into the paper. It's a matter of news judgment. It was the significance of the life enough that it, would, uh, that it qualifies as news to, uh, you know, to our readership. Do you have obits pre-prepared for people you think could go at any oh, yeah. time? You do. Oh, oh, yeah. We've got about... Um, got a, a file of about 1,500 people at the moment. Do you ever interview people prior to their death? Uh, I haven't. I've, uh, I've asked a couple of times, but um, certainly, uh, certainly other people on, uh, on the OBIT staff have. I guess there's a call you don't necessarily want to get, huh? 
my sense is that people either get it or they don't. Uh, if you look on the Times website, we have a uh, we have a video feature called the Last Word, which in which uh, a number of uh, very well known people have sat for video interviews about their lives before their deaths. Uh, it's it's pretty fascinating actually, and we have a number of those on file too. I guess it also allows you to go out on your own terms in your own words. Exactly. I mean, listen, you know, it's that uh, people get to be. Uh, a certain age, and uh, it seems pretty inevitable, right? I mean, some people uh, find the idea of speaking about your own death before it happens uh, macabre or depressing. Other people don't. You know, it's one of the interesting things about the job is sort of coming, uh, sort of bumping up against people's attitudes towards death. So would you say that writing obits has changed the way you view life and death? What I think I appreciate more is, 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 is what a universal experience grief is. That's the sort of thing that you can't escape, that people around you are going to die. And that I'd have to say that it's affected my, um, my sense of compassion for other people, yeah. Did you ever write an obit and think to yourself, gee, I wish I had the chance to sit down and talk with that person? Oh, I mean, the idea, it seems to me, is to choose obits of really interesting people. So, I mean, I, I have that feeling, you know, several times a week. You know, I've also had the experience of writing obituaries of people I knew, so uh, which is a little odd. <laughs> Have you ever given any thought to who would write your obituary or how your obituary would go? Would be very short, my obituary. <laughs> uh, actually, I haven't thought about it at all. Bruce Weber, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome, George. Bruce Weber is an obituary writer for The New York Times. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can check out our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. I'm not 